Okay, welcome to part two of this mini-series on podcasting with Callum Baird, where I took a, take a look at film, art, um, and ask whether or not society is beyond redemption by looking at the different themes, ideas, politics and philosophies in films, and what they say about society and how it, how these films tell us whether or not society can be redeemed and whether or not these films raise valid points about where we are today. In part one, I took a look at Blade Runner and offered some insight into that and asked what Blade Runner said to us about society and I'm not going to cover that again. So go back to part one and give it a listen. Have a listen into my framework that I'm using and then listen to my analysis of Blade Runner. And in this podcast, in this episode, I am going to be looking at doing a compare and contrast with The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, No Country for Old Men, and Dark, The Dark Knight. And I've put these films together because they deal with similar themes, they have similar character explorations, and crucially, although not explicitly, they ask us to consider whether or not society is beyond redemption. So, let's sort of start with the overlaps, I guess. Um, now, before I really get into this, into the overlaps and so on, I just want to say that I'm recording this all on the same day, these podcasts, this mini-series. Um, and I'm telling you this because this is a very much sort of fourth wall, behind the fourth wall sort of podcast, breaking down the fourth wall if you like, sort of podcast. I obviously want it to be nice for you to listen to at home. But I'm not going to be all pretentious and kid on that I've got all these bags of free time to be recording podcasts two or three times a week. This is all recorded on the same day. And so I have notes as well that I'm reading through. Um, So, yeah, there you go. A wee peek behind the fourth wall there, or whatever the phrase, whatever the turn of phrases I'm looking for. So, what are the overlaps of these three films? So let's start with the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, nah, let's go back to the start. <laughs> they all have different male characters, all these films, who each express different levels and versions of morality. So in the good, the bad, and the ugly, there's Blondie, Clint Eastwood's character, and he's supposedly the good. Um, and his character is the best version of morality that we get in the film. He's still a bit shady. But then there's Angel Eyes, who's the bad. And he is just an evil bastard. I mean, there's no escaping it. Uh, and then there's Tuco, who's the ugly. Uh, who And he's greedy, selfish, quite cold-hearted, uh, total crook. Uh, and his morality is dependent on what he can extract from each moral judgement for himself Um, so for instance he lets a man 
and this, this, this is full of spoilers, I should have said that in part one, there's a lot of spoilers here. So for instance in the film, Tuco lets a man uh, hang just so he can abduct Blondie to get his revenge. But then a couple scenes later, he takes Blondie to a church sanctuary to save his life after Tuco nearly de- dehydrated Blondie to his death. And he only does that so that he can get the location of the gold. So he lets somebody die so he can get what he wants and then he saves somebody's life just so he can get what he wants. Um, and I'll make some more comments about the film and its comments on society in a bit. So we'll come back. We'll come back to the good, the bad, and the ugly in a minute. Then we've got No Country for Old Men, and it's very similar in its character explorations, with some obvious differences. Um, there's Tommy Lee Jones's character, Sheriff Bell. Uh, he's a tired old cop from a bygone day. Um, he's trying to take a righteous path, or take take the righteous path of the law, I suppose, to correct, um, in his eyes, uh, and protect his community, but he knows he's, he's failing, and you see that all the way through the film. Um, then there's Llewellyn Moss, who's portrayed by Bros- Josh Brolin, um, and he's also quite a morally questionable character, um, he steals dirty money, and he seems to believe that he can somehow purify that money of its dirty connections, um, first of all by killing the film's antagonist, and then keeping the money for himself and his wife to give them each a better life. Llewellyn's got the added complexity of being a Vietnam War veteran, um, but he's very poor, he's living in poverty, um, and he sees a morally questionable society, morally questionable people, um, and sort of the corrupt, I guess, I guess, um, getting ahead in society. Um, but he's poor and in poverty after getting shot at in the name of his country. So, for Llewellyn Moss, uh, the money in, in this film represents the possibility of taking his fate into his own hands. And then there's Sugar, who's played by Javier Bardem, an excellent, excellent uh, piece of acting from Javier Bardem in this film. Um, there is some debate as to whether Javier uh, Sugar is a is amoralistic, but I'm not so sure. I think he knows what is right and wrong, but he leaves it up to chance. And he's sort of the spokesperson for fate in the film. And his main weapon in the film, uh, he's the film's antagonist, the main weapon that he uses is actually a coin. Yes, a coin that you would use to buy a packet of chewing gum with. Um, And he routinely brandishes this around and he flips it. Um, But he has an air cannon as well, which is quite a terrifying thing to to see him use, but his main weapon is the coin, and he uses that to um, decide people's fate. Um, so Chigar represents a, a new world, if you like, of sophistication. He uses modern technology, uh, like tracking beacons and air cannons, to carry out his crimes, and uh, the sheriff, uh, he can't contain him, because he's from a bygone day, and Moss can't compete with him, 
because he's not although he's a trained soldier he's not um he's not from the criminal underclass which makes sugar so such a poignant antagonist um and, and i'll cover what the film says about our society in just a minute as well and then we have the the batman films for that extra little bit of complexity um I'm going to focus on the Dark Knight, as I said, uh, but I might, I might. There's a chance I might flip between that and the Dark Knight Rises when I discuss the sort of consequences of these films for society uh, th- that might come up. But the main film in the Dark Knight, the main, the main film I'm going to be focusing on, sorry, is the Dark Knight, and um, the main characters in that film. Um, are Commissioner Gordon, although he starts off as Lieutenant Gordon, Batman, obviously, and then Harvey Dent. Um, we then have the Joker as a fourth character, um, but I'm not counting him as a main one. Uh, I think the, I think the main characters are Gordon, Batman, and Dent, and the reason for that is they all represent different ways and ideas of to how society can be redeemed. So, saying that they're the main characters is helpful to my framework. But the Joker's there. But what's interesting about the Joker is he never deals with all these three characters at once. He deals with them all individually at separate parts in the film. Sometimes more than once. But always, you never get Joker and the Commissioner. You never get the Joker, Batman and the Commissioner all in one room. It's just the Joker and Batman or the Joker. So, um... Actually, that's not quite true. There's a bit when the Joker's being interrogated and Batman's standing behind him, but the Joker doesn't know that. So, you, you, the Joker never really is in a two-on-one situation, is what I'm saying, with these other main characters. Um, and I guess we could also make an allowance for Bruce Wayne as a character. Um... But I think his development is more prominent in the in the last film, in the Dark Knight Rises, than it than it is in the Dark Knight. So I think we'll just leave it at Gordon, Batman, Dent, and filter in the Joker when we need to as well. The interesting thing about Dent, Gordon, and Batman is they all engage in pretty loose interpretations of the law. Um, although Dent and Gordon acknowledge in the last analysis, at least that. Uh, a criminal um, should be brought to justice by judicial processes they do engage in some pretty shady practices using Batman for one um, to, to get to that stage and um, they are yeah as I say they're happy to let a vigilante operate outside the law to get what they want which is justice um, so Batman then uh, and we get this repeatedly throughout the Christopher Nolan films Batman is a symbol uh, intended to get society back on track uh, to keep it in check to save society from destruction either from a terrorist or a petty criminal or in the in the final film uh, in The Dark Knight Rises 
Batman literally saves Gotham from social disintegration. Okay. Um, are there any more overlaps? So, Gordon in the Dark Knight and Bell in No Country for All Men have fairly similar views on the law and society. Um, they want to use the law to correct and protect their communities, but both sort of suspect that they there are stronger, higher maybe, definitely more pernicious forces at work that make this correction and protection very, very difficult indeed. For Bell, his solution is retirement, and for Gordon it's Batman, or Batman first and then Harvey Dent later, or maybe Dent first and Batman later depending on the situation. I think the overlaps between Dent's character and, Sh- and Sugar's character in No Country for Old Men are quite stark as well because both of their main weapon is a coin um, and they both use it for the same reasons. Um, and Dent's coin transitions from, interestingly, trans- transitions from an asset or, or like a nice little character quirk to a weapon throughout the course of the film. Whereas Sugar's uh, coin is a weapon from the get-go. And in the end, Dent and Sugar practice fairly deterministic, fatalistic moralities, where everything is up to chance. Um, Is there any more overlaps between those two? I think... Harvey Dent, I think, believes that society can be saved, um, or at least at first with sort of chess tactics combined with the law, uh, whereas Chagur realises that right from the start society is fucked <laughs> and the best way to navigate it really is to leave everything to fate and chance and take your morals from that, from whatever's thrown up from that. I think it's, yeah, I think Harvey Dent succumbs to that as well actually in the end, but um Maybe there's debate as to whether it's the logical logical conclusion of his previous disposition, but I'll leave that to the English lit specialists. Um, I think Batman and Llewellyn Moss are quite similar, but they're not the same. Um, you know, Moss doesn't want to help the police in the film because he that means he'll have to give up the money, and that means he's got to give up his ticket out of poverty. But he does want their help in taking, in taking out Sugar because he realises that that's the only way that um, that's the only way that Sugar can be defeated. So it's a double-edged sword. He wants to help get the police's help or some help from somewhere, but he realises that the only way to get this is by giving up the money to the police. So he goes it alone. I think Batman and Moss are similar in that they go outside the law to try and attain a sense of justice or some sort of something personal for themselves. Um, whereas Batman is, what's Batman up to? He's salv- well, he's salving his conscience because his parents were murdered right in front of him, and um, he's restoring a sense of like honor or something weird, spooky like that to Gotham that he believes has been lost by crime and so on. Um, and for Moss, uh, he's getting justice for his for serving his country, getting a piece of the pie, I suppose. 
not that's not been given to him by American society, despite his status, if you like, as a veteran. So the money for Moss in the film represents justice coming to him through buying a better life for himself, even if that is with tainted money, drug money. And he believes that he is being just by denying the drug dealers and criminals of their money and using it for his own pure purposes. Um, what else? Is there anything else? Any more overlaps? There probably is. I think as well, just before I go any deeper into what these films are sort of showing us some of the different types of individuals within society, how, um, no, what am I saying here? Yeah, I, I, yeah, actually. I think what these films are showing us is some of the different types of individuals that are in society. How the agency of those individuals influences and sets the parameters for social relations within society. And then how they subsequently intersect with the different class struggles taking place within society. Both the society in the film and outside of it. Um, and, as I said in the first podcast, the first part of this, uh, art is reflective and it's consolidative as well of different ideas and emotions that are in society. So what do these different films say about society and whether it can be redeemed? <coughs> Let us dirty our fluffy white tails in this um, rabbit hole, shall we? And we, we shall emerge from the other end. So, the good and the bad and the ugly, um, the setting of this film is absolutely key to understanding what this work of art thinks of society. Uh, the film is set during the American Civil War, and what we see throughout the film is that there's chancers um, and shysters on all sides trying to gleam whatever they can from the situation while the country literally literally burns uh, and the mass of the people suffer. Um, not to mention as well that the narrative of the American Civil War is that the future of a whole race of people um, is on the line here as well. Uh, <clears throat> and in the film, even some of the generals and soldiers that you come across don't really believe in what they're supposedly fighting for. Um, you see them, they're tired, they're afraid, they're alienated from their cause, uh, they just want to move on to something else or somewhere else. Um, and the Civil War in America took place from 1861 to 1865, and what preceded this was decades of map redrawing, totally botched political reforms, um, the build-up of different social contradictions um, and the over-expansion of markets, internal markets, um, in a nutshell. That's the sort of like context to the American Civil War. Um, so this the film uh, came out in the 1960s and it was taking place... Yeah, I mean, yeah, the film came out in the 1960s and what was taking place in America at that time. 
the civil rights movement, uh, repression, violence and race riots. Um, and this is a contextual backdrop to the film which is set in the United States 100 years previously. So what sort of conclusion can we draw from that? Well essentially the film is telling the American people that their country is a riot of shithousery, war, alienation, bigotry and division. It always has been and it always will be. Uh, so the film is saying that in a society like that there's no escape, there's no redemption. And don't even think about trying to hide from it as well, by the way, because what will eventually it will eventually come to your door in one shape or form. It will destroy your business and your home, as it does to several characters who are just mere passer, passers-by in the film. And they get caught up in the chaos of war, social division, the antics and carry-on of the three main characters as well. And, um... Excuse me. So, yeah, the good, the bad and the ugly is basically saying that society cannot be redeemed. Um, the good, the bad and the ugly just states that villainry, shithousery, alienation is just a part of life in society. And there are... It doesn't really offer us a solution. However... The different narratives, it offers us sort of alternative narratives for navigating society and it uses a character character exploration to offer some advice to people in society or offer some advice, offer some insight, some commentary uh, as well Um, and these narratives are in the title, the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, and I've kind of said a bit about each character um, like what they represent but each of these different characters are people who are trying to navigate the hell of war and division with each different character has a moral compass and they sort of share points with one of the other characters but um their, com- their moral compass is also different in some overtly explicit ways. As I've already said with Tuco, who he is as, just as evil as uh, as Angel Eyes at some parts in the film, but he's also he also shows, shows some good sides. He knows what's what um, he shows some sort of common morality with, or he shares some sort of common morality with uh, Blondie. Um, in the film um so they're they have like yeah these are the different these are the different sort of characters um but they have some overlapping similarities um but what the film wants us to believe i think is that there is no no good no good is possible in such a society as that one that's constantly at war with itself um one that's either literally a civil war or in the grips of a civil rights movement the what the what we are seeing there uh the commentary of the film is that america is a country that's constantly at war 
it's just the weaponry and the language and the positions that have changed but there's always division and corruption and alienation and just bitter division in society and in such a society as like that no good is possible and what's interesting as well is that Blondie um, is an anonymous he's, he's the best example of good but he's an anonymous person throughout the film series um, and we see him sort of behave as a vigilante um, sorry I should have said as well actually the good, the bad and the ugly is kind of part of a series with the fist, a fistful of dollars and a few dollars more and Clint Eastwood sort of reprises the same character but you, I don't think you ever find out his name um, I think he's literally in the film credits as a man with no name um, uh, the best the, the name he gets is Blondie from Tuco that's his nick. that's the name Tuco gives him um, and he, as I say he's an anonymous person he's sort of similar to, to Batman I guess um, he behaves as a vigilante um, deciding what is just and what is not just um, in a society that's or a country even that's incapable of organising itself in a cohesive manner um, and which in a country seemingly uh, every 100 years descends into conflict with itself um, and I, I think what the film says is that if you're you're really bad and shit then that will eventually catch up with you but it also says if you're too selfish and greedy then that will catch up with you as well so don't be like Angel Eyes he's an evil bastard and don't be like Tuco because he's greedy and selfish so the best way to be is to be like Blondie um, he plays people off against each other um, and he makes sure that those people take all the shit and all the risk um, and that in the end he literally rides off into the sun with the gold and that's that's the only way you can navigate a society like that is by being a bit sort of shady but not totally fucking bogging to people knowing when you can help people get what they want and trying to overlap your interests with other people's interests but never really in a constructive way it's always about putting yourself first never about trying to better society and I think when you watch a film like The Good, The Bad and The Ugly today <clears throat> its social commentary still rings very very true and it has some very harsh home truths for society because society is still fundamentally divided um, it's firstly divided on the basis of class and then on and uh, yeah then on race gender nationality religion i mean those aren't in that particular order um and more as well uh, and this is why the good the bad the ugly is still an exquisite an exquisite work of art um because the social relations it critiques and the social commentary it provides still reflect society today and one final thing actually I want to say on the film before I move on to No Country for Old Men I think what the film says and maybe I'm reading a bit more into this but I think you can you can see it uh, what the film is saying is that the American Revolution 
of liberty and equality has failed. Um, how the civil war of the 1800s has failed to bring a resolution founded on lasting peace. And the film tells us that American society is too unstable, too divided politically and culturally for any morally upstanding or innocent person to survive untouched from all of that. I think there is a little bit too much both sides as bad as each other in that sort of analysis. Um, and I think it sort of foreshadows some of the despondency and escapism that you find in like future postmodernist art, postmodernist like like some of David Lynch's stuff, some of Tarantino's stuff. But that being said, like when we look at the US today or or the West today, if you want, we can really say, like, can we really say? that our divisions and differences can be reconciled like if we stand and look at the what's happened in the year that's passed the transference of wealth um, from poor to rich at the start of the coronavirus pandemic was disgusting the, the total hatred from the far right towards people who want equality and justice can we really reconcile that within our current society? So it seems like like Blade Runner in the last podcast that the good, the bad and the ugly is correct that society cannot be redeemed to serve in the best interests of us all um, So gliding on to no country for old men and um what that film tells us about society and whether or not it can be redeemed. I think the key to this film is in the title. Um, The US is no country for an old man. It's a young, happening, rushing, dangerous, busy, self-important, corrupt, um, I suppose we would sum that up by saying a very nebulous place at best (laughs) um, to be and it's best left to the people who are shaping it and making it that way Um, excuse me a second I'll take a sip of water alternatively you could read old as meaning behind the times not necessarily as an old man but someone who is vulnerable because they aren't in step with the modernity Google that word, and contemporaneity of their time. Maybe they're too nostalgic or they're too naive to really take control and, you know, grasp the situation. I think as well, the, the like the good, the bad and the ugly, the setting of this port, uh, film is quite imp- important. Um, it's, it's set in 1980, I think, or it might be 79 or like a year, give or take a year, but I'm pretty sure it's 1980. It's a few years after the US's utter humiliation in Vietnam. And for a brief period, the country didn't really know where it was going. Um, and yeah, for a brief period, the co- I could go into that more, but let's just leave it at that. Uh, didn't really know where it was going, didn't really know where to go after that. However, despite that, um, 
a lot of people point to the 1980s as a sort of starting point for where we are today in society. So in No Country for Old Men you get the sense of a country looking back on itself with dissatisfaction and a country looking forward sort of tentatively, unsure of what's happening, uh, unsure of how to take any positive out of what's happening and deeply concerned with the the criminality that's emerging in society. So, yeah, you see a lot of social divisions in the film. A lot of the struggles of everyday Americans in little sort of backwater towns come across. You see the emergence of some technologies that are new to the people at the time. Um, so to us sort of watching them now, they seem archaic. Um, but, yeah, back then they would have been very new and unsure and would have added to the, like, total uncertainty. Um of where we were going. And maybe could go into a bit more of the sort of personality crisis the US was in in the sort of late 70s, but I, it'll just take me on a tangent, so let's just leave it. And it's they're a bit hot takey as well, and it's not really... Yeah, let's just leave it. Um, so, the, yeah, the setting of this film is in the, the 1980s. I think 1980. And then it's released... It's, it was first a novel. Um, I can't remember who wrote it. Um, and then it was released as a film in the early 2000s, and I think its release in the early 2000s is very prudent, much like the setting and release of, uh, like the setting of Blade Runner was quite prudent. I think the release of this film is quite smart, um, and it's uh, similar to the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly setting, and when it came out in the 1960s. So, as I said. Uh, Moss, Llewellyn Moss is a Vietnam veteran um, he's been cast aside by the state after his service um, and the film came out in 2007 at the height of the so called war on terror um, and while the US and its allies were still heavily involved in Iraq as well so I think the film is trying to tell us that serving your country with your life doesn't get you the rewards if you like that it should in inverted commas, or maybe we think that it should. Um, I think um, with that in mind then, the setting of the film or the novel and then the timing of its release as a film includes a mild critique of the US's military-industrial complex, this idea that serving your nation as a soldier is a great thing to do but you don't get rewarded for it. You get thrown on the scrap heap of poverty. Um, additionally, as the film develops, we get a critique of our modern society as well. Um, as I said, right at the very top, uh, the 1980s is identified as the starting point for a contemporary society. And we can see that in the film um, the film sets itself up inviting us to look back retrospectively on where we are and say it was always going to be this way um, 
that crime, anti-social institutions, anti-social mentalities, a society bereft of leadership, poverty, conflict and terror was always going to come. Um, saying that the warning signs were there but we ignored them and now look what's happened. It's grown arms and legs and gone way out of hand. And you sort of see that as well throughout the film. Um, Tommy Lee Jones's character bemoans the sophistication and the brutality of the crimes he's trying to prevent. He says, um, so yeah, the film says to us, like, look, he couldn't stop it when it was in its infancy. So what hope have we got now, now that it's all so much more sophisticated? So No Country for Old Men uh, very much presents the view that society is fucked. It always has been. And the only thing guaranteed is that the depravity, that's a good word, the depravity of it all will become more sophisticated than it was before. It says that in sort of, yeah, I think it says that in 20, 30 years time, the film um, is saying to us that you'll look back on today, pinpoint where it all started going wrong, rue your mistakes as an individual, as a person, and I think um, that you'll be forced to make a choice, the film is trying to say to us, you'll be forced to either just retire and escape it all you'll be forced to take up some shady morals and try to make and try to flirt with the fringes of the the depravity to make it make a better life for yourself or plunge your hands into the filth and make society more fucked um but either way, you're you're essentially accepting that society's fucked, whatever path you take. Um, so if you try to take the path that Moss takes, for example, if you try to take a route where you essentially try and keep a foot in both camps, where you steal dirty money but you intend to use it for a greater good, then the forces of crime will catch up with you. And spoiler, Moss dies. So don't do that. You could choose to be a spokesperson for fate, like Sugar, uh, embrace the depravity, and even be the bringer of fate to other people as well. However, if you choose to do that, um, you should keep in mind that one day you too will have a brush with fate, and you'll be lucky to survive. Um, And this is what happens to Sugar right at the end of the film when he's in a car crash. He's got a green light, and there's a guy who tries to run a red light and smashes into him. Um, uh, the final choice is that you can lead a quiet life. Um, Tommy Lee Jones's character retires to a quiet life on a ranch with his wife. Um, and the film says that you can choose that life. And, the, and it seems to suggest that's the best choice to make and really the only possible choice you can make in, in order to survive. He says The film says you can make that choice, retire, get a quiet life. But you will do so knowing that um, knowing that you're running away from forces beyond your control and comprehension and you'll do it as well knowing that you're living in fear that maybe one day those forces will cross your path either by chance or fate um, if you believe in fate 
So if you choose a quiet life, or if you choose that life of quietness, you'll be conscious of the fact that you have chosen it because you rue your past mistakes and missed opportunities to correct society or your individual life when it mattered and to stop these events being put into course. So for no country for all men then, society cannot be redeemed and its forward marches lead only to more depravity and cruelty. Hide from society if you can, but don't switch off. What about The Dark Knight? Well again the setting of these films is really important. The Dark Knight came out in 2008 and was released at the height of the war on terror. It was also in an election year and a lot of the debates around human rights, the state, terrorism and new technologies feature in one way or another in this in this film in this film, pardon me. The Dark Knight Rises came out in 2012, one year after the Occupy movement emerged, and for like maybe five minutes the Occupy movement threatened the global elite. Um, and Bane topples Gotham's elite, uh, quite literally undermining it. Um, he has a base below ground, his base is underneath Batman's armoury, which he has been... He has mined to take control of Batman's weapons, which is the tools. These are the tools for Batman's coercive control, which is just an interesting side point. And Bane's mythology is that he has risen from the shadows to topple the elite who have lived too long in the sun. When Batman confronts Bane, he is powerless physically to stop him, but it's the philosophy that's significant here. Um, uh, Batman is, Bane, is in Bane's world, and neither Batman with his strength or Bruce, Bruce Wayne with his wealth or his intellect, perhaps, can outdo Bane. Batman doesn't belong in Bane's world, and there's no place for him or his class in Bane's world. Um, as the film evolves, actually, it turns out that Bane is not a supporter of Occupy Wall Street, but is in fact more like a Bond villain, literally wielding a nuclear weapon as a as his as his chess piece. Um, I think these two films are quite telling of what Nolan and his, or this one in particular, are quite telling of what Nolan and his writers thought of the Occupy movement. They essentially just thought they were a rabble of envious terrorists whose only offering to society was more chaos, fear, uh, and ultimately destruction. Uh, and lastly, because I, I, I've noted this down and I want to just say this just before I move on to The Dark Knight, but what The Dark Knight Rises is saying to the elite and powerful in society is that maybe we should be a little more generous, a bit, share some stuff out more, hoard less, be less greedy, not give up power and wealth entirely, but be a bit more mindful that if we don't do these things then the scum whose throats we are standing on will topple everything we have built and unleash anarchy. Um, so the, the film sort of says, perhaps it says, or maybe it's also a call for calm to those in the 1% and is appealing to the 99% to use the language of Occupy Wall Street to reflect and ask what is better. You know, what's better, a society that's totally fucked that is unequal or one that is chaotic and anarchic. Um, any Marxist will tell you we have nothing to lose but our chains. Anyway, moving on. The Dark Knight, and that's the sort of main focus here. But the, those were some interesting points, I think, about The Dark Knight Rises. 
I rattled through them quite quickly, so you might want to go and listen to that again if you feel like it. Um, there's some similarities between this and No Country for Old Men, I think. As I've said before, we can see this in the characters and their traits, but what we have in The Dark Knight is a society in which the powers that be are trying to grapple with the forces of depravity that No Country for Old Men sort of encourages to encourages us to run away from. Um, so in The Dark Knight, technology features heavily in the film. Right at the very start of the film, Batman has to upgrade his suit to deal with new means and methods which the criminal class are using to thwart Batman's attempts at breaking up their business. Um, and then on the other end of the scale, we see the Joker making use of more like rudimentary methods. He, at one point in the film, he boasts to Harvey Dent that he brought the city to its knees with a few drums of gas and a couple of bullets. However, what the Joker uses, and I think this is his main weapon, it's not his... He, he's being uh, facetious there. His, the Joker's main weapon is he uses the media to provoke fear in the minds of people and he plays with different criminals or he plays different criminals off one against one off each other um, before he eventually disposes of them. Um, so the Joker is a, um, is a is a mad terrorist who who cannot be won over with money or to use a, a metaphor that's not so subtle in the film, he can't be won over with gems. He just wants to watch the world burn. Um, I should explain that. Alfred tells Batman the story of how he caught a jewel thief when he was in the army. Uh, this is in the film. Uh, so Alfred tells Batman in the film the story of how he caught a jewel thief when he was in the army. And they did this by burning down the forest where the jewel thief was hiding. Um, and the implication there uh, for the film is that if Batman and Bruce Wayne wants to stop the Joker, then they have to go beyond the pale. They have to drop all their rules and be willing to be more depraved than the Joker. Uh, or, or more depraved than the Joker has expected Batman to be in order to protect the so-called greater good and restore the rule of law over society um, the bourgeois rule of law, the ruling classes version of law should be said so I guess one question then is the use of technology to control the joker flirting with depravity in order to tame depravity um, Batman can do these things, but what we, but what would we do in the in the absence of a Batman type figure? Uh, in the Dark Knight Rises, they fill the Batman void or the the powers that be fill the Batman void by bending the rule of law. They just engage in latent corruption. They abuse the power of the state to assert the rule of law uh, over society and maintain order. So the film is asking us if this is a good trade-off. Um, so it's like a, cl it's a classic debate which is sort of shaping our time uh, security and order in exchange for the state taking up a more authoritarian place in society and I think when we look at society today much like Blade Runner Good, the Bad and the Ugly No Country for Old Men when we look at society today The Dark Knight gets a lot of things right and the film sort of projects as well where we are now, where the state has massive surveillance powers 
and authorities and that it has worked these powers out in cooperation with global corporations who have signed up to this on the proviso that they get all our data to sell us shit we don't need. Uh, and the film also asks us to consider if this is a worthy trade-off. You know, round-the-clock surveillance, but it will make us safer. Um, and I, but I think the difference between this and, and Blade Runner, like while Blade Runner says takes the there is no alternative thing to its logical conclusion and shows us that humanity is heading for a, a miserable future, essentially. I think Batman reinforces that narrative, that there's no alternative. And the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises ultimately tell us that while society is imperfect, there's no alternative to the rule of law. There's no alternative to the ruling class, to their rule, essentially. Um, and I think that the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises are thoroughly imbued with the ideology of there's no alternative. These are Tina films. Um, and I think this these films are a great example of the... I mean, all these issues are active and ongoing debates in society. Um, and the film is a great example of art taking part and political, cultural, philosophical debates, reflecting these ideologies, consolidating them, offering some different ideas and perspectives and playing with some logical conclusions, playing with different individuals in society and how their agency takes part. I mean, all of these films do that, actually. All the ones I just mentioned there, they all do that. Play with the different parameters of society. They soak up from society all the debates and tensions put them into art and give them back to us and say this is where society is going what do you think and that's that's what art does art is active uh, it's an ongoing process art it doesn't have a finish point and it's active in the debate in society and all these films are great examples of art taking part in these debates and reflecting them and consolidating some ideas within them as well and reinforcing the ideology, some of the dominant ideologies in society. So, what the, the Dark Knight films say to us is that society can be redeemed but only if we accept that there is no alternative. If we stop struggling against society, society can be redeemed and brought back into order and balance. That there is no alternative to power inequalities and wealth inequalities, and yeah, they might spill over, but if we accept the rule of law, which is the bourgeois rule of law, the ruling class's rule, their law then ultimately society will continue to trickle along, trickle along, tick over uh, in the interests of the greater good, which is we have a society, we don't have disorganised chaos and we can pursue our relative freedoms within that boundary. As a Marxist, I would dispute that conclusion. Though ultimately, 
that's probably for another podcast. Where are we at now? I did say this would take up to about an hour. We're pretty much at an hour. So I'm going to gonna stop this one. going to stop there. And the next one, let me just have a look where we're at. I'm going to cover Lord of the Rings. And then offer some conclusions. And, uh, yeah, I think that'll just be... We'll be... That'll be us. So, yeah, so far, art is telling us that if we want redemption, we have to put our faith in the current and existing order. And you can either take the Blade Runner view that society, if we do that, so if we do what the Dark Knight says, and what it's trying to say to us, that we have to find a way of assimilating these technologies that keep us safe, but accept the rule of law then Blade Runner says they'll actually that'll lead us to misery and if we assert that there's no alternative we'll lose our humanity our compassion and our empathy so as it stands at the moment we're at a bit of a crossroads we're at a bit of a or not a crossroads a dead end okay so I'll be back to see what Lord of the Rings tells us about our society and where we go from here. Ciao.